welcome to the 2018 Prima podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Kevin Lombardo will discuss chronic pain in an aging workforce. Kevin is the President and CEO of Dorn, one of the country's leading pain management companies. He is responsible for the strategy, development, and expansion plans for the company and oversees Dorn's focus on developing innovative solutions with an emphasis on mitigating future costs with result-oriented programs. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Kevin. Thank you very much, Taekwon. What is the impact of pain in the workplace and why is it an important issue? Is there any connection to the opioid epidemic? Well, Taekwon, that is really a loaded question for us to start with today. So I really appreciate that and and a lot to unpack. Please bear with me. The first segment of our discussion may sound negative or depressing, but there's good news, and I'm sure we'll have time to get to that. Pain impacts millions every day. Some 100 million people live and work with chronic pain. And the definition of chronic pain is very broad, but in general, it's defined as pain lasting more than 12 weeks. So when somebody says, I'm in chronic pain, they've had that pain for at least three months. And as I said, there's over 100 million people who live and work with that every day. According to the Journal of Pain, pain costs the U.S. economy $635 billion annually. You could break this down between medical costs of $300 billion and lost productivity of $335 billion. When you start adding in the indirect costs of presenteeism, management of workers' comp claims and health care claims, the opiate crisis, We're talking over $2 trillion a year. It's a really significant issue. Presenteeism alone is 10x what absenteeism is. We know that only about 29% of the workforce is actually engaged while on the job. Everybody on all of our listeners know this from reading all the trade journals. Is that all related to pain? Of course not. But the impact of presenteeism on its own is $1.5 trillion per year, and a big piece of that is pain-related. If I'm in discomfort on a daily basis, even working at a desk, I can't be as productive as if I was pain-free. So it only goes to show that we need to really start taking a look at a lot of different things. Most pain is caused by overexertion. Overexertion is the leading cause of non-fatal disabling injuries, and 78% of overexertion injuries are based in sprains and strains, stuff that our listeners deal with every day. There's a psychological impact of pain working in pain as well. 77 of those who live with chronic pain, that's 100 million people, feel depressed. And 66% of those feel they have no control over that pain. We've developed a white paper on this and found the following issues affect people who work and live in pain. Cognitive effects. Chronic pain can affect basic cognitive function, causing everything from faulty or fuzzy memory to inability to focus. This has a direct negative impact on knowledge formation and learning, and if they need to perform safety checks before using equipment or driving a truck, injury risk can only be compounded and compromised. Even mild pain or discomfort can cause irregular sleep. An estimated 35 to 40% of Americans have sleeping problems, many of whom show up to the workplace tired, distracted, irritable, careless. Lack of quality sleep not only undercuts performance, but it can be a safety risk in certain environments. Exercise. Chronic pain discourages people from regular exercise. 
Exercise releases endorphins in the body and helps keep people both happy and healthy. So avoidance of exercise inevitably leads to a downturn in overall satisfaction. Diet. One's diet is likely to deteriorate when faced with chronic pain and is inevitably a byproduct of anxiety and even depression. That can have an unhealthy influence on eating habits and patterns. People will tend to eat more and more frequently, reaching for less healthy food and snacks. We know when we're tired and we're irritable, we get home, you know, we're not, we're not cooking a healthy dinner. We're just reaching for what's ever available, and sometimes we stop and get fast food. Morale and work satisfaction. As previously stated, some people keep working at all costs, even at the expense of their own health. It only gets worse the more it goes unattended. They're silently so drawn as their pain influences their performance and their morale. Additionally, chronic pain is associated with stigma particularly a social stigma, related to the perception that the individual isn't strong enough to cope with the pain. This leads to impatience and a belief that the individual should be doing better than what they are. This stigma can also keep the sufferer from seeking out treatment as they fear they will be perceived as not coping well enough with the pain and will be labeled a failure. This can have a significant impact on morale, work satisfaction, and even life satisfaction. Let me give you an example. We work with a lot of first responders. And I always say, you know, what fireman is going to show up when there's a fire and say, you know, guys, I can't go into that burning building. My back's hurting a little bit. People work through pain to their own detriment long-term and to the detriment of their fellow workers, especially if they're in an environment of first responders, police, fire, ambulance, as well as other people who work. If you're, if you're doing some work on maintenance and you're relying on your colleague to ensure that you have a safe work environment, but they're working in pain and they're just not present. It just has a compromise all the way around. And then lastly, quality of life. Chronic pain can cause deterioration in the quality of life of the person primarily affected, as well as the family people and family members and social connections who often find themselves shouldering activities, such as care duty, supervision, or day-to-day support for everything from transportation to shopping, even helping in decision-making. As a result of these new obligations, relatives and friends may suffer from an array of psychological effects themselves, feelings of sadness, being overburdened, frustrated, just overwhelmed. If these demands take the toll, the quality and support will utterly diminish the quality of life for the primary pain sufferer and all those associated with him or her. These all create risk for an injury-laden workforce. So what do people do? Many do nothing. And, and we find that a lot when we deal with organizations, those people who are soldiering on. But a high number, 63%, they go to the doctor. Although worker comp claims may not be a big item for some of our listeners, I urge you to take a look at your healthcare costs of musculoskeletal issues, soft tissue issues. They dwarf workers' comp anywhere from 4 to 5x. I'll give you an example. We have a national client, 10,000 people in North America, their annual workers' comp costs for muscular skeletal issues is somewhere around $3 million a year because we've been working with them on a national rollout. So we had them go look at their healthcare costs. Muscular skeletal issues in the healthcare side are $22 million a year. Now that's about a seventh. Most organizations the study show are about four to five X. That's a significant impact when you add the two together. And it's just, you know, some people say, hey, we, we, don't, we don't have workers' comp claims, so we don't really have to address that. Look under the covers in the healthcare site. It dwarfs the workers' comp side. We were working with a uh, city in the Midwest, 
and we looked at their data. Seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars a year in total MSD claims. Two hundred thousand in workers' comp. Six hundred thousand in healthcare costs. You know, I'm shoveling my, I'm shoveling my sidewalk during the, the blizzard, and I throw out my back. It's a non-occupied claim, but it's sitting there. And I think I urge all our listeners to go and look on both sides of the fence. People begin to address pain on their own. Solutions such as yoga, mindfulness, which have proven to have positive results. Others use body work like deep tissue, which deep tissue work, which has shown great results. Others turn to stimuli to mask that pain, such as marijuana and pain medications. With marijuana, organizations need to evaluate how they look at that when states are legalizing it at various levels with a zero tolerance based policy that many have and especially if some of our listeners are getting any funding from the federal government and it's still illegal at the federal level, there's this balancing act that we have to do. But people are still using that to mass pain. So addressing pain, you can still keep your zero tolerance, but how you have to help your employees address that pain, address that discomfort, so that they don't turn to those other avenues, marijuana, opiates, to mask it, and then they get caught in the zero tolerance when they're real, we're really still not helping that individual. So on pain meds and opiates, it's time we all take a serious look at how we address it. When you read the literature, much of it is around how we address people who are dependent while in the comp system or after they become dependent. It's an important factor because we need to get people back to work pain-free and medication-free. Opiate abuse now kills nearly 100 people every day. It costs $78 billion a year in lost productivity and health costs. And that number's rising all the time. So as the topic gets more pressed every day, we need to look at addressing pain for those 100 million that work and live with chronic pain every day. Like any other health issue, prevention and early intervention will have the biggest impact. Academia is all over this issue and usually leads the way anyways. The door is open for, for the folks like our listeners to become an active participant in this issue of not only opiate issues, but how pain is treated. The more folks get involved with organizations like Prima and others, the conversations become elevated and more widespread. The faster we get to solutions that are accepted by C levels, boards, or councils that have to approve programs on the preventative side. So overall, I, I, I answered that question a little bit long-winded, but it, there's just a huge issue when you start saying, you know, what's the impact on pain? And I think we're at the right time in the right place as groups, our listeners, academia, organizations like Prima to come together and figure out solutions. What is the connection between pain in an aged or tenured workforce? Well, let's first start by identifying what we mean by tenured employees. To me, it covers two areas, those with significant length of service and older workers. In both cases, there are some stats that may surprise our listeners. Baby boomers, of which I I am one, are still a significant part of the workforce. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, about 40% of people ages 55 and older were working or actively looking for work. In 2010, workers older than 55 made up 19% of the workforce. By 2020, that is projected to be 25%, and it's the fastest-growing segment of the workforce. That is not necessarily a bad thing for multiple reasons, but it's something that our, our organizations need to take a look at and really understand the dynamics of that. But like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Tenure workers or baby boomers have significant experience in organizations they leverage. The challenge of filling key roles will only get harder. The next generation has 10 million less people than baby boomers. 
and millennials who outnumber baby boomers right now have yet to reach that experience level to take on many of these leadership roles without having to be fully on-the-job training, without mentors, without guidance. So baby boomers, the next generation, got 10 million less people, and the millennials are not ready to step in. So organizations have to figure out how do we maintain the people that we have, especially those at the higher end of the age range, and leverage their expertise to turn them, not maybe just from workers, to turn them into mentors, coaches, developers for the next generation. The rise in the gig marketplace, where more and more people are working more short-term assignments for multiple organizations. Organizations need to define the balance between permanent employees who understand the organization, the culture, the customers, and those fractional people who fill a role. The gig economy has yet to be a big part of our listeners' organizations. I'm sure it will be over the next five years, because I can tell you in the non-municipality area, non-prima area, it is a major part of a lot of organizations. So overall, these factors combine to create a dynamic for the need to keep that experience in the organization. And with that experience comes issues with pain, as we've discussed. When older workers are injured, as our audience knows, the following results. The severity of the injury, it increases, which just makes sense as does the prevalence of injuries. We have a client who 65% of those people are workers' comp are over the age of 45. When I'm talking to a prospect, I always ask, what's your average age? Anything 45 and older tells me they have a tenured workforce, they have older workers, and then we start looking underneath the covers at the, uh, at the issues underneath there to see what's causing it. And we see that prevalence, we see the severity, duration increases. A study done in 2011 around the duration of temp payments showed that those over 45 have 25% more intent payment, thus more time out than those who are hurt and under 45. It's just logical. As you get older, things start happening, your body starts breaking down, and if you do get hurt on the job, you're out longer, it's costing more for the organization, and then you got the issue of do we have enough people to fill the, the role behind you. So we have severity of injury, duration, and thus the cost rises as age rises. By the way, I want to make it clear that pain is not proprietary to tenured workers. A little-known fact is that millennials and younger folks are in, at as much risk as older folks. How? As the younger generation has grown up on handheld devices and games, doing schoolwork, walking and playing with their heads down, or slouched on the couch, crunched and hunched over, they are creating issues in their necks, shoulders, and back. Younger workers are coming into the workforce with pre-existing conditions that can manifest itself at any time as the injury at work or even the costly doctor visit we talked about. So they, too, need to be addressed with any program development. So at the end of the day, you have to touch with the, you know, the issue of aging workforce or you've got multiple actions. It's going to cost you more. It's harder to find replacements because the people just out there, our unemployment rate is very low. And, again, we have people in the gig economy there's jobs that just can't get filled. We, we talk to people all the time. They just can't fill the jobs. That one client I referred to, 10,000 people in North America, they, they indicate that within the next five years, not 10 years, five years, 70% of the people will turn over because of retirement, and they can't find the people to fill the jobs. So organizations need to address this. How do we keep that experience and that, uh, in, the, in the organization, leverage that, help younger people grow into those roles, but also make sure that our people aren't getting hurt to have that costly workers' comp or that health care cost. So there's many dynamics when you start talking about the tenured or the aged workforce. 
We hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2018 annual conference, June 4th through 6th in Indianapolis. Here's some words from Prima's meetings manager, Monique Gilliam, regarding Prima's annual conference. Our annual conference is the leading event for public risk management professionals and provide a unique opportunity for attendees to connect with and learn from peers and thought leaders from inside the industry. Prima will be offering over 50 educational sessions this year, including our first ever cyber symposium brought to us by the Department of Homeland Security. You can find out more information about Prima's 2018 annual conference by visiting Prima's website, www.primacentral.org, and click on the annual conference logo. To learn more about Prima's annual conference, visit primacentral.org. How have organizations responded? Well, by now I may have depressed most of our listeners, so hopefully there's a few left out there. <laughs> but there is good news. Seriously, there is good news. Many organizations have been proactive in working at ways to stem this issue with varying success. Well, this program has been around for years and with various, various levels of success, as well as ergonomic solutions and on-site checks. We work with a lot of folks, and they tell us we have wellness programs. We just can't get the traction that we need. And so we take a look at those things and say, okay, why? Companies such as Google and those like them have allowed more casual working environments to try to reduce stress. You have things like working from home, you know, telecommuting, those types of things. I know people that are programmers in the technology space that they'll be doing their programming at 9 or 10 o'clock at night at their night owls. And organizations have tried to figure out different ways to help relieve a lot of that stress that could trigger an injury. So solutions that organizations are trying, they're just varied. They're, they're kind of all over the place. And many programs come and go. We've talked about wellness programs. We see in a lot of cases, they start, they stop. They start, they stop. Challenge is what works and what doesn't. When we work with organizations, we evaluate not only their MSD issues and claims, but their current programs to help us understand why one is working and why others have failed, even if they're good programs. Because understanding what works and what doesn't work in that culture or why it didn't work is going to be important because if we're putting in a new program, we don't want to become another start and stop. So for successful programs, I kind of come up with four pillars for success. Number one, senior management support. The ability to have traction and to have, is to have a shift in the culture and employee health and well-being, not just safety, is of critical importance to the organization. That can only come from the top. Mayors, county executives, CEOs, governors, and other top officials have to have a belief and create the culture for open discussion. We will decline work with organizations where it's clear the culture is such that people are discouraged to report pain or discomfort. Some fear that they will be the first to be laid off should restructuring happen. It may not even come from the top leaders, but at times from department supervisors and managers who may not have been educated or empowered to help their employees who are under stress for performance themselves. So if that supervisor or that manager is under pressure to hit deadlines or to hit productivity levels, that rolls downhill to the workers. Now, if we need to enhance the education, we can still have success, even in some of those organizations that may have a tough culture. Our motto is to empower people through education and engagement, take ownership of their own health care. So we have a whole educational program senior management to frontline supervisors down to the employees. And that's how we get our long-term sustainable success. And the reason I say that 
because our average client has been with us 8, 10, 12, and some 14 years. So having the right culture and senior management support is crucial. One way to gain that is looking at NIOSH's philosophy of total worker health. Dorn has adopted this as our corporate philosophy. But what does that mean, total worker health? All it really says is that we need to begin to look at employees more holistically and that organizations such as safety, EHS, wellness, benefits should work together to address these issues. Even though there's still separate budgets and initiatives, they should be more, there should be more coordination in the efforts to increase the likelihood of success and sustainability. You also need to have a senior level evangelist or supporter that will help to sell the program to whoever the decision-making body is. We'll fight for it when budgets are cut. We'll ensure employees know about it. Now, let me give you an example. We worked with, we worked with a county for nearly 15 years. Our personnel was rejected four times for funding for our program. At some point, he found some discretionary spending for a small test program. So he tested the program. And once we'd proven the results, he was able to sell it from those results to the boards who had to approve his budget every year. Anytime budget cuts were discussed, he was there to ensure this program was. Today, this is an employee benefit. 15 years later, this is an employee benefit for all 1,500 employees, and no longer is it ever in any discussion of jeopardy for budget cuts. Without his support early on, this too would have been one of those start-stop programs. So it's important to have an evangelist who's at the senior level who will make sure that this is top of mind. So one is senior management support. Two, eliminate barriers to success. Remove that stigma associated with saying, I'm in pain or I can't function fully. We talked about this extensively earlier, that about the stigma, especially for folks like first responders, you know, Removing those barriers also comes from top leadership. They have to say, it's okay. I read an article about three months ago, a technology company where a woman sent out an email and said, um, I'm going to be off the next two days. I'm taking a mental health uh, day. And people were shocked that somebody would even say something like that. Well, she got a note from the CEO directly. This is like 8,000 employees. She got a note from the CEO thanking her for stepping forward to acknowledge she needed time off to re-energize and regroup and to really make sure that when she came back to work, she was ready to really hit the ground running. Those are the type of organizations that really take this seriously and can make an effective change. I know that that's not the culture in a lot of organizations and maybe a lot of our listeners are saying, well, that doesn't work here. It starts with discussion. It starts with just having discussions around these issues. So you got to eliminate those barriers to that. Number three, develop measures of success and metrics. Take a chapter from private businesses and begin to use ROI metrics and other metrics that prove out the success of the program. Then if budgets get tight, this program's not the first to go. We survey over 3,000 people a year we work with, and the results we get are significant, such as 42% reduction or elimination of pain medication. We talked about opiates before, so that's a huge impact. 60% are not going to the doctor for those pain issues, lower workers' complaints and costs. 59% lower absenteeism too, and 50% increased productivity. Whatever your KPIs are, your key performance indicators, whatever they are, use them to measure success. I'll give you an example. We've been having a discussion for about a year now in a small county who has about 700000 a year in total musculoskeletal costs and about 500 employees, $1,400 a year for every employee on average. They can't find the budget to start a small program, prove out those results like I talked about earlier in another client. 
And we've been told that the annual ROI of over 600% they would, they would achieve isn't what the decision-making group looks at. So again, I think it's important for our listeners that yes, even in the environment you're in, you have your own KPIs. Manage those KPIs around whatever pro- wellness program, safety program, put those KPIs in place. But I do urge everybody to start looking at ROIs. And even if in the beginning people say, oh, we don't look at that, put it in there. Keep putting it back in there. Keep putting it back in there. Eventually, you will find somebody who listens and somebody says, you know, you're absolutely right. We should be looking at it this way. And it may take a couple of years, but you will then start having a different type of discussion around whatever program you you are looking at. Number four, combine multiple services into a total coordinated program. Many organizations have ergonomic teams, on-site treatment, self-care education, nutritionists, proper technique training, so on and so on. They all need to be synchronized so that to the employee, it's a single initiative with multiple facets. We find when working with organizations, again, you have wellness has their initiatives, safety has their initiatives, EHS has their initiatives, risk management, so forth. And employees still get in and say, yeah, we have about 20 different programs. I don't even know which one I should be in. Doesn't mean those 20 is probably a little overstated. We have 10 different programs. I don't know which one I should be in. It's okay to have 10 types of programs. They should be under one coordinated effort and put your team together of the head of risk, safety, wellness, EHS, so that it's a coordinated effort. It's a single organizational, name it something, and within there, we do have ergonomics. We do have wellness. We do have other safety. We do have whatever whatever your programs are. They all come under one one title, one one organization. So as I said, so they need to be synchronized. So the employee is a single initiative with multiple facets. It helps create less confusion by having a single point of contact and getting long term sustainability of interest. Now, a single point of contact could be this uh, committee, but there should be a single point of contact. Programs should be developed to address the body, the behaviors, and the environment to ensure the highest potential of success. We can take pain away, but if we don't change behaviors and look at the working condition, you lose sustainability of any treatment. Proper material marketing is important, as well to avoid misunderstanding or just confusion on all available services, options, or initiatives. And we talked about that. So to recap, those four pillars, senior management support, elimination of barriers and stigmas, Measure success, and the solution should be multifaceted yet coordinated. Is there progress being made? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Even with all the stop stops that we talked about, there is progress. It's in the public consciousness now, and organizations are beginning to have more focus as they better understand the underlying causes and long-term impacts of pain. Organizations like Prima are making it a major agenda item at conferences. We have one blog titled The Game Changer for the Opiate written by, for the opiate epidemic, written by guest blogger Mark Pugh, which has over 3,000 views and nearly 300 shares. And NIOSH is a great source as well. So it's in the public consciousness. That's always the start of any real change, any grassroots change. At Dorn, we're getting more unsolicited requests to speak on pain management as well from organizations to discuss how we can support their efforts to create pain-free and injury-free environment. These are now coming unsolicited versus us always going out and knocking on doors. So the public awareness is there. This public awareness, academia focus, and now organizational focus is where it starts. So yes, progress is being made. Folks on this podcast, 
have all been on the front lines of this issue for years, and they know it. A lot of what I'm telling them today, they intuitively know it. They live it every day. They're breathing it. I guess I'm trying to help maybe pull it all together. But now support is coming from the sea levels and from your, uh, like I said, your your leaders that have decision-making authority that will make our listeners' jobs much easier to get programs implemented. Again, got to have that evangelist. When it comes to the opiate crisis, states are starting to limit how prescriptions are handled. And last week, uh, there was a one pharma company, I forget who it was, who indicated they're going to stop marketing their opiates so hard to doctors. Obviously, they still want to sell their medications through the doctors, but they've made a commitment not to sell it as hard. I think it's um, CVS that has stopped selling cigarettes. You know, so there's a lot of changes happening. So I think there's some progress being made out there, but there's a lot more to go. We're just at the infancy of making a change, even though we've been at this 18 years. As a public consciousness, as a country, we're in the infancy, but that's okay. There is progress being made. What should organizations look for when evaluating a solution or service provider? That's a great question because as that public consciousness and awareness is happening, as academia is doing more and more publications around it, as organizations are really starting to take a strong look at it, they say, okay, what's next? How do I do this? To me, it's important that you look for an organization that can support, can prove out their model. Doesn't mean a new company or new science can't support your efforts, but test for the following items. Is the solution based in science? Our programs have been studied by universities, insurance companies, in support of the outcomes. The protocols we use for our manual therapy are scientifically proven methods. Understand the skills of the people who will actually be on-site providing the service and what training do they receive. So what we find is as more of this is happening and more and more companies are coming to board, uh, organizations, you start then getting press for, well, we got to onboard these clients fast. Well, are you, what are the skills of the people, but more importantly, what training do they get? What's the expertise that that person who comes on site, patient at training, the manual therapy, whatever it is, the ergonomics, what's their experience level? And if their experience level is X, what training do they get from you? Why you versus another public? So it's important to understand all that. Results and data driven. My advice, share your data so that any potential service provider can develop an ROI model that you can hold it to. Even if your organization's decision process isn't driven by the ROI model, use it to measure the success of the program once you get it in. Make sure they have your data on, if you're talking about muscular skeletal and pain issues, they have your data on muscular skeletal claims, workers' comp, and healthcare. Make sure they have the data in support of employee satisfaction and other key factors such as pain level deduction, sustainability of that, medication reduction, lower turnover, so forth and so forth. Together, develop a report card that they will be measured on at least semi-annually. If somebody can't measure the results and share them back to you at that type of interval, stay away. Experience. Many, as I mentioned, many companies are popping up now as this has become more in the public consciousness. By the way, that's not a bad thing because it brings, it brings new ideas to the table. It also puts, you know, honestly, it puts a little bit of uh, pressure on companies like us who've been around 18 years to be current and stay current on what's the new science, what's the new way to address things. So that's okay that many solutions are popular. If the company is young, make sure that the people that are running it have the experience, and if not, they have a proven model with the data. 
like I said, Jordan's been around in the pain management industry for 18 years. We are always looking at new solutions and technologies to help our clients out. And, of course, references. As with any new service, check references. Having experience with municipalities or counties isn't critical because Payne doesn't care if you work for the city or General Electric. It's really about their asking about the results, their approach, their support functions, and that is usually a new program, a new service, that, uh, especially something like ours that people have never been exposed to before, not easily understood, and people may need significant support in the beginning. We do a lot of lunch and learns for supervisors, town hall meetings, EHS fairs, and provide communication tools to help in the onboarding of a successful program. So dig deep beyond just the results when you check those references. It's how do they get those results? What support are they going to offer you? How are they going to ensure that there's a smooth transition into a new program? How is it going to be communicated to our, communicated to our employees? What tools do they have? help make that easier because the last thing you want to do is get assigned to somebody in the organization, be it safety, wellness, wherever. That person already has a full-time job. To take on another program, it's not about, okay, Sally, you now have time to do this. It's how is this organization going to make it so seamless and so easy for Sally to make that program work. So that's an important component when you start checking references. And, and those are the four things I like. It's a solution-based in science, results and data-driven, get that report card going, the experience of the people that are delivering it, even if it's a new company, and, of course, references. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, as you can tell, this is not just my business, but helping people live and work pay-free is my passion. I'm also very focused on helping address the dependency on pain medications. I can talk about this all day. I appreciate we're time-limited and um, people can't listen to me speak all day, that's for sure. We've covered a lot of material today and in a very short period of time. We have slides we have, uh, that we can share with folks who are interested in learning more. We also blog on these topics and white papers that people can download if they have interest to learn more and go deeper on any of these subjects that we talked about. I want, I want to thank you personally and thank Prima for allowing me this time to share my thoughts on this important issue. I wish all of our listeners a healthy and pain-free 2018, and thank you very much. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Kevin and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk.